Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, I'm going to try to squeeze this in between a lot of things today. I guess it's always the way it is, always in the middle of a lot of other things. Uh, but I'll try to hop around so I won't have this hanging over my head and I can proceed with my other assignments. Uh, last week, I did the yard sale of the Shuz Yaakov. The reason is because I didn't know anybody whose yard was around, and Ari Elman was kind enough to send me like a dozen names. And the one that immediately jumped to me was the Shuz Yaakov. But another one was on there, and that was my second choice, and I just left it for today. Uh, so it was early in um, Tevez. And that's somebody is a very, very uh, unusual character. And then I thought I could sink my teeth into, and I'm talking about Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Yosef, Yosef Hanagid, the son of Shmuel Hanagid, which is a cautionary tale if there ever was one. And unfortunately, it's kind of no to the current situation we find ourselves in around the world and even America with the rising anti-Semitism. It's a, it's a food for thought. The person I'm talking to, I'm talking about, is from the golden age of the Jews in Spain, as we've mentioned before. This is something in the 11th century, the 1000s, and this person lived to be 30, maybe 35, less than 35 years old. I'm talking of here one of the leading uh, figures and characters in Jewish history in the 1000s and in the golden age of the Jews of Spain, and that's of Shmuel Hanagin and his son. It's the art of his son. Shmuel Hanagin, I don't think I did it here. I hope I don't want to sound like a fool and found that I spoke about this before. But I don't think so. And Shmuel gives a, a very celebrated figure and a Renaissance man because there's somebody, and I don't want to concentrate on him so much today, but I have no choice but to make reference to him. Uh, the most unusual Jewish figure in the Middle Ages was without question because he wore 10, 15 hats and he got an A plus in each hat, each role. He was, for example, a uh, famous Jewish addictive guy. Because in the Middle Ages, in the um, Golden Age of Spain, the Jews copied the Arabs. The Arabs were nuts about the Arabic language because the Koran is written in Arabic and so forth. Therefore, they consider that Lashon HaKodesh, and they go, ooh, ooh, ah, oh, of every syllable, and the kuda, and uh, verb and adjective. So the Jews did that with Hebrew. That's why Diktuk, as you and I know it, arose in the nine ten hundreds in Spain. All the, there are no Diktuk books before that. Uh, and it must have been grammar of some kind or other, rules of Hebrew, but you won't find any uh, writings about it, which is just interesting. Uh, it's not only not yeshiva, it didn't exist. And then, so he was a major figure in the, in the history of Diktuk, and he was a debater with all these other Diktuk guys. I'm not going to bore you with the details now. He's also one of the most famous, arguably the most famous poet of medieval Jewry, the, the Golden Age of Jews in Spain. That's quite a thing I just said, Shmuel Anagid. Because here we're dealing with something which is a particular interest in Mishagasa of mine. I've always been interested for many decades in medieval Jewish poetry, especially the poetry in Spain. 
where the Jews produced an, a, a, a remarkable, um, uh, what shall I say, a body of uh, Hebrew poetry, that the average person out there has no idea even exists. It's, all, it's, it's like not having heard of classical music. And it's Givaldic. And uh, I'm talking about people who are big rabbis as well, people who were not. And it's just a whole treasure house. And I got into this in my 20s, many years ago. And uh, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And there are some heavy hitters and some B characters. So the big three, usually, the big three poets, the way I was raised was uh, Shlomo Ibn Gabiro, Yehuda Alevi, and uh, who's the other one? Yehuda Alevi, and Moshe Ibn Ezra. Those are the three. Not the Ibn Ezra and the Chumash. Him I spoke about actually once. But Moshe Ibn Ezra, who's a famous poet. But since that's the way they used, that's the way I was taught, I read long ago. Since then, people have, experts have revised their estimation. They say, no, Shmuel Lanug is the greatest. He's up there with the top three or four. So here's a guy who was a big diktuk person uh, in the history of verbs and adjectives and things like that, even though it sounds funny for me to say it to you, but that's because you're just ignorant. You don't know about this whole area. That's number one. Number two, he's like a major poet who wrote hundreds literally hundreds of poems, which were eventually collected into three uh, volumes. One was written in the style of Tehillim, one was written in the style of Kohelis, and one was written in the style of Mishli. But they're not all from poems. Many of them, like the famous poets in Spain, wrote on uh, uh, not Kodish topics, but Chulin topics. And some of them are X-rated, to, to be honest. So it's kind of funny to see famous from Jews writing this way, but that was the culture at that time, so it wasn't considered weird. It was part of the Arabic uh, culture to do that. I know it sounds funny to say, but that's a fact. <laughs> so here's somebody's a major poet, and I'll talk about that in a second. So that's already two big hats. Um, and I'm not finished. In addition to that, he had an extraordinary career in which he rose from nothing to be a prime minister of an Arab country. It's the only case in history. I'm talking about the period in Spain where the Islamic uh, kingdom fell apart. The Arabs took over Spain in the early 700s. They fought each other like crazy all the time, couldn't get their act together until the 900s. In 900s, this guy, Abdurman, who I must have spoken about before, I'm sure, Abdurman III, united all the Arabs militarily under his rule and became the Caliph of Cordoba. That's a very high title. And uh, this is what they call the Golden Age of the Jews in Spain, where Cordoba, if you've ever been there, I've been there, uh, was it became the foremost city in the world, the world, I tell you, and uh, under this uh, caliph guy. And then um, what happened was that after he died, about 40 years or so later, 40, 50 years later, the whole thing fell apart again. The Arabs re reverted to form and started fighting each other, and they had a good thing, and they tore it apart with Machlokes, and they ended up uh, destroying their own kingdom. And instead... Islamic Spain broke up into a whole bunch of little kingdoms. They're called Taifa, the, the, uh, the successor states. So basically every city became a, a, a kingdom. Cordoba became a kingdom. Valencia became a kingdom. Toledo became a kingdom. And the one we're interested in is Granada. Now Granada, and I've been there on a, my trip to Spain. I, I led a trip there a number of years ago. A very beautiful city. Once upon a time, Granada was not a city. Granada was... In the old days, a Jewish neighborhood. Literally, like you see in Baltimore, Upper Park Heights, something like that. Granada was a Jewish neighborhood. It was a suburb of another place. 
It was called Granada Al Yahud, you know, the Jewish uh, neighborhood of Granada. Granada, by the way, means uh, pomegranates, right? Grenade, French, and Granada is pomegranates. So, um, this Jewish neighborhood eventually morphed into an Arab city. And uh, in this environment where everybody was setting up little kingdoms, so uh, some Berbers took over and set up their own kingdom there. Now, you don't know what the Berbers are. The Muslims, in their conquest after the death of Mohammed, conquered all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, among other things, the whole North Africa. And when they got over there, they went to places that you and I call Algeria, Morocco, and so forth. And the population there is what we call Berbers. And they're not Arabs. So the Arabs conquered and shechted the Berbers and kind of forced Islam to, upon them. But not perfectly. They still kept up a lot of, uh, in the Middle Ages, they kept up a lot of the Avodazar ideas, even though officially they were Muslim. And they became great, they were big soldiers, fighters. And without going into the details, because I could give a lecture on this for an hour and a half, a uh, number of them became very important figures in Islamic Spain. And so you had two Muslim groups always at each other's throats, the Arab Arabs and the Berbers. In the case I'm talking about, a certain guy, Zawi, uh, took over this area called what you and I call Granada and set up a malucha over there. And this kingdom lasted for most of the 10 hundreds. You know, roughly speaking, like from 1013 to like 1090, you know, something like that. So this is a, was a kingdom. Now, one of the Jews that ran away from the Cordoba and came to this place, Granada, which is not so far away, was uh, this guy Shmuel, the person we call Shmuel Nugget. And uh, he became Shmuel Nagid. And there's a whole long, very romantic story in which he came there, he was poor, and he set up a... Uh, it's in the, brought in the Jewish sources in the Sefer Kabbalah from the 11th century, 12th century. This is not... Excuse me. It's not a uh, mystical book. It's a history book from the Middle Ages. And he knew... Uh, this person, Shmuel Ibn Nagrela, he uh, had, had what we would call today an A-plus Torah education and an A-plus secular education. If there ever was a Torah Mata, and this is very rare, extremely rare, where you excel in both, uh, he, he was it. And he came to uh, Granada, the story is, and uh, he set up a spice shop in the uh, marketplace, and a lady needed help with the taxes, a geisha lady, and he wrote her a letter to the IRS, and the people at the IRS said, well, how do you know who wrote this letter? It's such such beautiful Arabic. has all these Koran quotations and all that, and she says, this Jew, and time prevents me from going in this greater detail, by the time the story's over, he becomes the prime minister of the kingdom, the vizier, which is unusual, I mean, it's unique, because in Islam, as in the Torah, uh, a non-believer cannot hold official position, what we call, uh, what do you call in Hebrew, a misra, um, a srara, right, can't have srara, so that's the same thing in Islam, but this guy was so indispensable that he became the vizier. There were four rulers in, of Cordoba. There was this guy, Zawi, and then another guy, uh, what was it again, uh, Badis, I think? No, it was Kabus, and then Badis, and then Abdullah. Something like that. What do you care? Anyway, um, it's called the Zirid Kingdom of Granada. Not to be confused with the other kingdom of Granada that popped up later in the 1200s. It's uh, very confusing in Spain. So the point is, here's somebody who was a big dicto guy and a major poet, and he knew Arabic poetry cold because I tell you again, he had an A-plus Arabic education. Like we say today, you know, PhD from Harvard, from Oxford, you know, the equivalent of thereof in the Arabic, Arabic sense. There's a big Kamal Chacham too. 
and he became the prime minister of the country. Now, how did the Arabs tolerate that? He had to walk on eggs, and uh, he ran the whole. He eventually ran the whole show. In fact, he became the Secretary of Defense, as well as the Secretary of State and many other and Secretary of Treasury. And Secretary of Defense means he formed the army and he led the Arab army. These are Muslim armies against other Muslim kings because all these states fought each other in the 10 hundreds and he won all the battles. So it's incredible. I mean, I could go into detail. He did like General Wolfe and, and, and Montcalm and, and, and uh, Quebec, you know, he climbed, he led his army climbing cliffs and surprised the other guys behind. And he has all these poems about it because he wrote hundreds and hundreds of poems and he has many poems about his campaigns. This is a from Jew. Now, how did you get a Muslim army to follow from Jew? Who didn't convert. Uh, and in there, he, uh, you know, uh, is, is, is literally unique. So I just described somebody who is a dictator guy, major dictator guy, a major poet, a mashorer of all sorts of Hebrew poems. And then I talked about a guy who had an unbelievable political career, so he became a prime minister of a country. And then I told you that he wasn't only prime minister of a country, he was a general. Maybe, I won't say the most successful general of the 11th century, but he's up there as a Jew with no background. No background. He also ran the FBI and the CIA because you couldn't stay in power unless you had spies everywhere telling them plots against you. He had endless plots. And he knew the Arab mentality, that he knew not to antagonize them. Uh, there's a very famous story, again, in the Sefer Kabbalah, in which uh, he was riding with the king in the street, and somebody said, damn Jew, and the king got angry, you insult my uh, uh, minister, I appointed him, uh, cut this guy's tongue out. But he didn't do that. What he did was he got the guy a job with Social Security, and the reason is because he got him a government job, if he, if he, if he cut the guy's tongue out, all the relatives would be seething with hatred, and they would plot and they would kill him, because uh, they can't help it, that's how the Arabs are. But if you do him a favor, so you can turn it around, and they say, oh, you know, the Jewish guy got him a job, and maybe he can get me a job too. And he did do that sort of thing. And uh, the story goes that the king later on saw the, that Arab, and he said, long live the, you know, Shmuel uh, ibn the Jew. And the king said, I thought, I told you to cut the guy's tongue out. And the story is that Shmuel ibn says, I cut his evil tongue out and replaced it with a good tongue, with Lush and Tov. Now, let me tell you something. I know Shmuel ibn If he was able to, he cut that guy's tongue out and, and, and other parts too. But uh, he was smart enough to know you can't do that. You have to know the science of getting along with the guy. So this reminds us of Yosef in Egypt. In fact, these are the two figures that I would bracket. Joseph as the viceroy in Egypt and Shmuel HaNagid as the viceroy or the prime minister in, um, in Granada. And even though the situations are very different, but in each case you had to have a, be a bucky in the science of learning how to operate in a hostile society. Uh, so Secretary of Defense, the head of the FBI, the head of the CIA, what else is out there? And then, in addition to that, you're going to laugh at what I'm about to tell you. He's Rosh Hashiva. <laughs> He's one of the Roshonim. He's quoted in the halachic literature. Uh, he wrote commentaries on the, on, on the, on the Shas. And uh, what, what else did he write? I think something called uh, Shas Kutner, some, some name like that. I mean, he was a real player. And in fact, since he became rich as the prime minister, he built a big yeshiva building, and he had guys there, and he bankrolled the whole yeshiva on his own. And in addition to the yeshiva that he had in Granada, he also uh, seems to have founded the Lakewood of Spain. Can you believe this? The Lakewood of Spain was in a place called 
Lucina, which is not that far away from Granada. And that became Dekar Makam Torah. I referred to this in the past when I talked about certain other Rishonim, Rimagash, people like that. that. That yeshiva, which really became the headquarters of Torah in, in the Spanish-Arabic era, the Rambam's father learned there, for example, uh, is incredible. It was founded by Shmuel Nagid because he was rich, he could do it. And he had shaykhs with the Gonim and Bavel. So he's just an extraordinary guy. And uh, Now, I'm not talking about him, I'm talking about his son. He had several children. He had one son who was brilliant. And therefore, he put all of his hopes in him. He said, when I go, I hope to leave this whole business to him. Uh, and he did. He did. So he died in 1056, something like that. And his son was about 20, 21 years old. His son is Yosef, Yosef. And because he wrote hundreds of poems, so we know a lot about the son because a lot of these poems are, are written to the son. And you see him as a father trying to raise this uh, brilliant child who's got a lot of potential to have education in all different areas. And so, for example, here I'm pulling out the Bible for uh, medieval Jewish poetry in Spain is the two-volume work, Hashirah Ha'ivrit, Bisfarat Ubeprovancia Bimea Benayim, which is a very famous book, or is now anyway. Uh, and that's a, a book that was put together by a professor in the Hebrew University back in the 50s, I think, Sherman. Uh, there used to be these guys, who uh, still are, they used to be famous in, in the last 100, 150 years, who specialized in medieval Jewish poetry. Before there was a guy, Heinrich Brody, who was a chief rabbi in Prague, like a modern Orthodox guy, and Sherman also was sort of like that. And they assembled pieces of um, these uh, uh, snippets from the uh, vast corpus of uh, the famous poem poets, of medieval Spain in two fat volumes. I bought this a million years ago at a second-hand bookstore in Brooklyn. And they also have, like, Kahatik notes at the bottom. Get it? It's like that. So this is, if you, if you want to ever any shaykhs to this, this is the way you go. And uh, if anybody is interested in this. And he has a whole long passage, of course, of, uh, I don't know, of 75 pages of uh, examples from the poems of Shmuel Nagid. And X number of them are written to his son. And some of them have become famous in the history of, uh, of medieval Jewish poetry. For example, and I'm just I'm not going to spend all hour reading you poems. I could do it. I could do it to drop of a hat. But guess what? I got places to go too. But he has a little poem here: "Bekablo Targil The father is leading an army, but in the middle, the son sends him. He's a little boy. Sends him um, exercise book. I guess you'd say, in which he have you know reading like. Uh, Machberis, in which you write your olive base and 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 uh, little uh, sentences and things like this, and the father is saying, Your writing is very pretty, like a lightning. But to me and you have your line straight. And it's a pleasure to my eyes to see your calligraphy. You write your letters so nicely. And it smells good too, because in the Middle Ages you you dunk your letter in uh, you know perfume. Continue to read and and to write, and pay attention to the religion of the Aron the Kaporis. Now don't forget your 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 Torah studies either. And if you add more to this, I'll give you an, uh, I'll give you a raise in the allowance. 
Yehosef, in Kisav Tomo Be Barso you may have scratched your letters with an iron pen on a letter, on a, you know, on on an Igeris. But your words are inscribed on my liver, as we say today, in my heart. And I send you all the heart, all the love from the uh, inner uh, walls of the heart of a father. And whatever I write you by criticism is, like it says in the Bible, open rebuke and secret love. Meaning anything I'm writing to you to correct your grammar or your writing or your learning is all from positive, constructive criticism because I love you deeply. So it's open rebuke, uh, but it's which covers a hidden love. It's just a, a very beautiful little poem. I hope you can appreciate this little snippet that I said over here. The most famous of these, in my opinion, uh, is, uh, let's see over here. Yeah, with the one written from the battlefield. Let's see here, page 116. And uh, where he, the yeah, the father is what he called, uh, literally running on a drum head in, in, in the field of battle, uh, just before, just after. I think just just uh, before, or I can't remember the battle. And he's writing to his son, Yehosef, everything I endure and suffer, all the trouble I have in life is for you. Now, I'm a father trying to set you up well. Vululiat, if it wasn't for you, my, my promising child, I would have had an entirely different lifestyle. I would have swept over the world and just lived a, 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 a dissolute lifestyle. The words I'm writing to you are Yosha Amarim. Who can be more honest with you than your father? So anything I'm writing to you, I'm saying from complete sincerity. I'm ready to go into battlefield, about to lead a charge. And so life and death is thing. Anything I'm writing to you, I'm running with death mitzachek at me, you know? And so you know I'm writing a very serious vein. And I don't know who's going to win the battle tomorrow. I have no idea if the, if the result of the battle is going to be, and maybe today was the, yesterday was the last time I ever saw you, you saw me. And therefore give your attention to what I'm writing to you, and if you're sleeping, uh, wait, let this letter wake it up. So obviously the kid must have been slacking off, <laughs> this is great, in his studies, and the father is saying, Laman Hashem, I'm about to lead a charge in battle. Who knows where it's going to go? And so please, buckle down to your studies. And I'm trying to send every day new teachers and better teachers to help you out. Don't forget, no matter how rich you are, to have your Shamayim. Remember your Creator. And for God's sakes, acquire Bina and Seichel because there's an important thing out there that you can boast about is Tavuna and Seichel, not money. So here's a kid obviously born in the lap of luxury in a palace of the vizier, and there's always a danger with a teenager. You're born in the lack of luxury, you slack off, and the father's saying, use wisdom. You know, the father was born poor, so he cultivated this. You're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Cultivates Seichel and Tavuna, that's the real glory. You're all imach. So show some derechets for your mother. <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> and speak nicely to your uncle. 
So the kid must have been, you know, a spoiled brat at a certain age. And try to be friends with everybody. You don't need enemies in life. And before you get rich, get a Shem Tov. Isn't that something? Yehosef. And anybody who's a friend of yours, give him what he wants. Be And if you can't give him what he wants, say it in a nice way. Don't make enemies. Don't make enemies. And give tzedakah. And when you give money, remember, you could be poor one day. Don't rely on your father on me. You plan to make your own career. That only your own career is what you can be proud of. The opposite. What you have to do is try to surpass me. And don't, you know, make fun of uh, those who are younger than you. Uh, so you can see from the letter what kind of a kid it was. And you see what kind of a father that takes the chinuch very, very seriously. And if God takes me tomorrow, let me be your light, meaning let me uh, be your example. May God protect you against uh, uh, any uh, um, misfortune. And you know, you don't get these kind of poems. Years ago, I don't know, is the Beitat Futsat still around? <laughs> haven't been there in years. Remember, they used to have this museum, maybe it's still there in Tel Aviv University like a Jewish history uh, kind of exhibits. This was from the 70s now. But uh, I haven't been there a long time, but it's still there. And they had these, like, dioramas, and one of them was a, a picture of, of uh, Shmuel uh, Nugget. Just what I'm telling you, sitting on a battlefield and writing this letter, and I, I believe they had the poem up there, and so forth. And, uh, and by the way, and the father had high standards. Uh, he has something that's very uh, politically incorrect today. He walks by yeshiva, uh the father, and, uh, you know, you know what I learned very well, and he heard a rabbi giving a shir, and it was all wrong, and he's making fun of him in a poem, where he says, Hayir Havazman Rabbi Barava. When he hears the, the rabbi giving the shir wrong, he says, Has time uh, declared war on rabbi and, and rabba? Has there been a machlekes between you and the Gemara? Is, is this why the Talmud is now left in the hands of rabbis who are, who are fools? All they have is a big stomach and a beard. They don't know how to learn. Anybody with a beard and, and a big stomach, he says, can say, I'm another Mephiboshes, I'm another Haigam. You think it's all external? It's unbelievable. Look, he's writing this in the 10 hundreds. You think just wearing long tzitzis and having a long beard and having a big black hat makes a person, each Rosh Hashiva? Zechorachi. My friend, remember, do you remember we once went to a shul on a hot day, and we heard <laughs> a donkey braying, eh, like that. But it was not, that he, that's what he's calling the Rebbe. And we heard cries of the, the cattle, meaning the students in class. And I said to you, who turned the base medish into a barn? That's an Avera to do that. This is so literally is ridiculous. And the other guy said, No, it's not animals. They're chasing over a certain Masechta. But they're getting it all wrong. No, they must have been saying the shot totally wrong. You've switched the Torah for something else. What, what do I do now? 
and we both walked into the base medrash. I wish we would have made a, a, a wrong turn on the way and never gotten there. Because what did we find? The Rebbe and the Talmud are shaking, you know, like you learn Gemara, you shake up and down. They're shaking their head like Arba like a, a, a tree in the wind. And as they did so, they cursed and blasphemed Hill and Shammai. Now, he doesn't mean it means like this. They said wrong shot in Hill and Shammai. So basically, by misinterpreting their words, they're slapping them, they're Megadif them. And they hit Rabbi Kiva on the cheek. And the Rebbe was giving a whole shear to explain wrong shot, as he thought. Word by word. And I sat there and I was getting more and more angry as I saw this stupidity. And I tried to say to the Rebbe. And he answered me, you know, in a harsh way. And then after. This year they started doing mea brachas, I guess chakras or something, but kol ovakakonsov with a bad voice. Yevarkil manish bro. And I heard the guy say like this, Burkhatashem al-Kim Achalam Shalosani Isha. Right? Yevarkil Laman Ishbro below Isha. Hashibosi Chiva, I answered him. Ha Toshi Snapshabin is Lakharim, Velyabhat Nakeva. Why do you say Shalana Hasanisha? You're obviously an Isha, because in the Middle Ages, especially in Islamic Spain, a woman is dumb. Right? This is, this is uh, incorrect in modern culture, obviously. But I'm talking about the Middle Ages. One thing. In the Arabic culture, the women is, is, is the uneducated ones, the dumb ones. So he's saying to Rashiba, he says, You can't say Shlosani Isha. By you, it's Shlosani Isha because you don't know how to learn. I'm just trying to say, This is the father. So imagine having a, a father like that. There are many other poems, by the way. I'm just I'm not going to take 100 hours on this. They're absolutely fascinating. Uh, now, by the way, if you're interested in all in what I'm saying, because uh, I don't know who I'm talking to, obviously, you can get snippets of this in something called the Penguin Book of Hebrew Verse, edited and translated by Carmi. It probably costs 10 bucks on the line, or maybe less. It's a golden oldie out there, which has pieces of... Uh, and, and pretty good translations. Pretty fair translations. And more specifically, if you're interested... In a more recent thing, there's actually a, not a bad, um, what shall I say, not a bad uh, whew, uh, translation by Hill Hawkins. It's not from, but he's a big translator. And it's called Grand Things to Write a Poem on, a verse autobiography of Shmuel Hanagid, uh, published in uh, by Geffen in Jerusalem 2000. A professor friend of mine showed it to me. I got a copy. It's it, it, it's kind of interesting. One very one very interesting piece he has there, which Sherman doesn't have, is what he writes in English. They're nice translations. A letter to his son, congratulating him on a halachic ruling. You see, these elites in Spain, you have to have a perfect secular education, but you also have to have the father. I'm just uh, uh, quoted you in the poems. Wants his son also be a big Rosh Hashiva, and so. The son is already older. And he said, Oh, my beloved, and all that. I saw it day after you, and you passed in Ashala, and it was Gavaldic. You got it right, just like you came from Harsinai. You got it, Mamish, correct. And you, what's the right? Shikaladas. You, you laid your sock. In exactly the right balance, 
and apparently somebody tried to slug you up, and we got busted. And he said, I love what you're doing. It's like, it's like honey to me. You know, to me, to me, it's like honey. And he basically says that, uh, you know, if, if, I'm the friend of all those who fight in the Gemara and conquer it, meaning fighting the Gemara in the good sense of Milchamto Shal Torah, as we would say today. And you were not only Lochem in the Milchama Shal Talmud, but you're located. No, you captured the prize. No, as we would say today, you got the Psak right. And you wrote it in a very nice, the Chuva, you wrote it in a very nice language. And it goes on and on and on about this. So he's really proud of the son that he's learning and becoming his Hamachacham. So here we can see something unique in the Middle Ages. A boy growing up, because the father is a poet, and you can see what it's like for a boy to grow up in these kind of families. And you know how it goes. It's true of everybody. Maybe at the age of 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 or something like that, he slacked off. But eventually, and maybe he had uh, problems with uh, being spoiled, because if you're rich, it's hard to you know get past that. But eventually he got his act together, and he turned into what the father wanted him to turn into. Now, to get to the point, this, um, as I said before, the father was an expert in, as much as one can be an expert, in, in the signs of getting along with the Arabs, which means you have to know when to hold them and to fold them. Even so, if you know anything at all about the Middle Ages, not that you should, uh, Shmuel Anugid, the father, had a reputation for uh, discreetly uh, engaging in uh, vikuchim, arguments of which is more superior to Torah or the Quran. At least that's what it seems. The most famous Muslim uh, writer and theologian of that century was somebody who knew Shmuel Nugget, Ibn Hazm. And Ibn Hazm has a couple of, uh, who wrote a lot. And he has like a whole treatise against Judaism where he goes after the Chumash and the Tanakh and shows you how stupid it is and how the Quran is so much better. It's very, very interesting, but it's not, not for you guys. Uh, there's a very famous article in 1949, Professor Perlman, who puts all this in English. And uh, uh, he goes after Shmuel Nugget and he says, how can a Jew, who's a pig, be allowed to be a, a prime minister over there? And this is just terrible. And I heard that he dissed Islam and uh, here's my refutations and all, eh, all that kind of business. But having said that, generally speaking, Shmuel Nugget knew not to be too ostentatious. The son... Yosef, who we're talking about today, you know, it's hard to do that. If you come from a poor background, you can kind of understand this. If you come from a richy rich background, so ever since day one, he was, a, you know, the modern equivalent of being chauffeured around in limousine by a Rolls Royce. The Goyim don't like that. The Muslims don't like that. And so he was a genius, the son, by the time he turned 20 or so. Uh, he followed the father's curriculum, obviously, uh, which must have been a very intensive curriculum and a dual track, and when the father died, the son was like, like I say, 20 or 21, and the king made the son, at the age of 20, 21, the prime minister and everything, the father was also. And for 10 years, he ran the kingdom. So, obviously, he must have these brains. And uh, the problem is that by this time, it was, uh, and, and the kingdom prospered. Uh, let me say that, you know, I don't want to give you the whole king, history of the Taifa kingdom of Granada, but they prospered. They conquered Malaga. They expanded. The economy was well and all that sort of thing. But the, the enmity built up right and left. And this has been Hazem. And there was another guy. They found an, uh, about 100 years ago a, a poem 
from this Muslim guy, Abu Ishaq ibn Alberia, Abu, Ish, uh, Abu Yitzhak of Elvira, which is right near Granada, in which he's complaining that the Jews live it up, and we, the Goyim, are suffering, and they're riding around, like I say, in Rolls Royces, and they're the ones living up a day, and they, in their synagogues, they dumb too loud, and so it disturbs the Muslim worshippers, and all kind of things are just dumb, dumb, dumb. The kind of thing that you and I complain about in America, where he says, why does this guy have to make a kolachem? Why does this guy have to do this? Why do he do, why do these guys in, I don't know, you know, in, in, in this, I don't want to say names, but you know, in this community, that community, why they got to go and cause trouble with the local school board and with the this and with the that, you know, you're creating an explosive environment. That is what happened to Granada. And Yosef Hanagid, who obviously was a genius if he became the prime minister after his father. And the king kept him aboard. Okay, the king kept him aboard. And uh, the taxes and everything ran well, but he appointed too many Jews, you understand, uh, to positions. And uh, he himself uh, built himself too fancy of a house. At least what the what Abu Ishaq says is he built himself a house, a palace of marble. I had a guy who don't have a palace of marble. So what do you mean? You know, the Muslim in their religion, the Jews have to be the underdog, the dimi. And his guy's living too well. You understand? What are you flaunting in the face for? The guy wasn't smart. And he did other things along those lines. And sooner or later, it had to be a blow-up. had to be a blow-up. And, of course, there was. And um, on the day before Sarbatavis, which is the last day of the year of 1066, uh, you know, when you're in school, you have to learn 1066 of the Battle of Hastings, right? When William, William the Conqueror captured England. So uh, that's true. But for Jewish history, uh, December 30th, the last day of the year, uh, was the, the, was when when it, it it blew up, hit the fan. It, 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 uh, 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 the Muslims went crazy. And they attacked the palace, and they killed him. He tried to hide. He covered his face, and they killed him. They killed all the Jews in the city. The wife and his kids. The wife and one child was able to escape. By the way, I left one point out. The father, small another, who gave his son an A plus Torah education and an A plus. Um, secular education, Arabic education, also got him A plus shidduch. Um, he he met, uh, this is in Granada. He married his son to the biggest to the daughter of the biggest Talmud Chacham in North Africa. Uh, who is it again? The son of Reb Nisim Gaon, so Yaakov and Nisim. Let's put it this way: the guy who was the buddy with Rabbeinu Hanan and running the yeshiva in Cairo. On. You know, sometimes you have situations where two people run the yeshiva successfully. So we all know Rabbeinu Hanano, and uh, that's in North Africa near Tunisia, and his uh, partner was Yaakov ben uh, Nisim, I guess. And that was a wedding of the century. In fact, I still remember, again, in the Beit HaTrusot, they have some diorama or whatever, panorama of, of the super wedding of the century. So, it's it's uh, listen, it's not like a rich American wedding today, but it was a super wedding of that time. So uh, this guy, he couldn't help but flaunt it. You know what I'm saying? He couldn't help but lived this lifestyle. And so the Gaimal killed him, killed all the Jews in the community. The wife and a child escaped and ran away to Lakewood, to Lucina. Uh, then the kid died young. It's a whole very tragic story. And this became the, the, the big tragedy of the ninth of Atavis, the day before Sarbatavis. In fact, the, in, the, in the Middle Ages in Spain, they used to write like this. We know what the ace of Tavis is. That's when they did the Septuagint. We know what Sarbatavis is, but we don't know the middle day. Some say, so Ezra died. Others have something to do with Christianity. There's all kind of theories. and he said, But now we know it's the day that Granada was wiped out. And uh, the reason I 
and, and, and that was the end of him. And so he had a brilliant career, and uh, there's no question in my mind, they burned his place down, they burned all his farm, his manuscripts. He was like the father, a big Talmud Chacham, and he, and he and was then get 30 or 35, 33 when he died. So if he would have had a regular career, he would have produced uh, serious stuff in terms of Shas and Postkim, as well as poems and all the other things. That's like the, the father trained them to be like himself. But all this was cut down uh, sharply by violence, and that's because he wasn't wise enough to understand the science of getting along in the Golas. It's like a classic case. And, uh, uh, you know, there are many reasons for anti-Semitism out there. And a lot of them are not our fault, but sometimes it is the fault. Uh, flaunting it too much has always been a fault. And that's just the way it goes in Jewish history. And uh, here, the, 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 what I told you now, the story of 1066 and Rabbi Husef Hanagit, uh, is maybe the spitz, the arch example of the Jew flaunting it too much and therefore provoking a total destruction uh, it's like the classic case in medieval Jewish history. It's happened in other times also, but you can't get more than this. So the guy had everything, and then he lost everything. I'll just do one last piece in here. Um, if you go over to Granada, and like I said, I was in Spain, so they show you the Alhambra Palace, which is an amazing uh, palace, one of the ten fanciest palaces that if you go around the world, you know, they tourism, they take you there. And it's quite a place. And it's always speculation that what's the origins of this. Um... And uh, some say Shmuel Nugget, which I don't think is actually true, but the tour guide said it, but, you know, uh, because it has a bunch of lions in the front of him, and in one of his poems he makes reference to the lions, I don't know. But I do think, I'm not going to bore you with the historical research, I do think that the son, Rabbi Yosef, uh, it might have been his house in the beginning, but then once they killed him, the king took it over and built it up fancier and schmancier, and that became the Alhambra Palace, uh, which would be an archive, which means... That if you ever go there, uh, there are two messages. One is the the magnificence of the architecture, and the second message, Morno Gay, is the Musar Haskell, because the guy built himself a palace, which was taken over by the Arabs and by the government later on, by the Catholics. So whatever he built, he built on sand. You know what I mean? And uh, he, you know, so that's the transience, shall we say, of uh, success in that world. And on the contrary, the one who rises high in government, in society, in wealth, all the rest of it, has to be double and triple careful. Uh, not many people can be a Yosef in Egypt. Now, Shmuel Hanugget was able to do that, but Shmuel Hanugget's son, who's the yard with the other day, was not able to do that. I think that's a very uh, a profound uh, philosophical lesson. Anyway, I am late, so let's call it over here. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.